0: Just go to our show page on Apple Podcasts and tap Try Free to start your free seven-day trial. Membership has its privileges. Hmm, you should copyright that.
1: Ready to pop the question? From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com
0: From the Under the Influence digital box set, this episode is from Season 7, 2018. Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein were one of the greatest composing teams of all time. Together, they wrote musicals such as Oklahoma, The King and I, and South Pacific. Rodgers wrote the music, Hammerstein wrote the lyrics. Their work won 34 Tonys, 15 Academy Awards, 2 Grammy Awards, and a Pulitzer. Kind of like the Keith and I. But their last project together would become their most successful... The year was 1959. The project? The Sound of Music. The magic of Rodgers and Hammerstein was not only their innate ability to create incredible songs, but incredible songs that advanced the plot. Many musicals offered thin plot lines and were interrupted by songs that were showpieces for the performers, but often stopped the story in its tracks. Rodgers and Hammerstein integrated their numbers, infused them with both whimsy and drama, but always, always advanced the narrative. In other words, they made the story the star. While the Broadway version of The Sound of Music got tepid reviews initially, the 1965 film version would go on to win five Academy Awards. The show contained the most hit songs of any musical Rodgers and Hammerstein ever wrote together, And one of the most popular songs was My Favorite Things. In the film, Julie Andrews, playing governess Maria, has been brought in to help with widower Captain Von Trapp's seven children. The captain is high handed and cold. The children want to be loved. And when a thunderstorm scares the children one night, they rush into Maria's room. That's when Maria sings My Favorite Things. The song, on the surface, seems to have simplistic lyrics. But My Favorite Things is an important moment in the story. It's the scene where Maria finally bonds with the children. But more importantly, the song is not about being afraid of thunderstorms. It's about trying to deal with the unspeakable sadness suffered by the Von Trapp children, the loss of their mother. My Favorite Things advances the story... The movie would save 20th Century Fox after the catastrophic financial failure of Cleopatra. Adjusted for ticket price inflation, it has earned over $1.3 billion and is considered one of the highest-grossing films of all time. The soundtrack from the film would go on to sell over 20 million copies. And when I watch my wife and three daughters gather around the television to watch The Sound of Music every year... It is clearly one of their favorite things. Uh Welcome to our annual episode where I tip my hat to some of my favorite things. My list may not include the coolest brands, the hippest brands, or even the newest ones, but I admire them for other reasons. Maybe it's because they've lasted so long in this disposable world or they made a big impression on me when i was a kid or maybe it's just because they are so utterly unique but whatever the case each of the brands i talk about today gives me a serious case of brand envy
2: you're under the influence
0: John F. Kennedy met with Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev at the 1961 Vienna summit, it didn't go well. A year later, Khrushchev ordered the construction of the Berlin Wall, maybe the greatest symbol of the Cold War. While JFK was in Vienna, he was given a gift. It was from Pez, the candy maker that had been founded in Vienna. It was a beautiful, custom-made satin-lined case. When opened, it said to the President of the United States, J.F. Kennedy, with the compliments of Pez. Inside were three Pez dispensers, a donkey-headed one for the Democratic president, a gold dispenser for wife Jackie, and a Bozo the Clown dispenser for daughter Caroline. JFK was given dozens of gifts on that trip, but for some reason, the Pez gift was the only one he declined. Maybe he wasn't a Pez fan... Pez candy was invented by Edward Haas in Vienna way back in 1927. The iconic name Pez comes from Pfeffermins, the German word for peppermint. Pez only came in one flavor back then, so Haas took the first letter, P, the middle letter, E, and the last letter, Z. It was originally sold in small tins and was instantly popular. That packaging wasn't changed until 1949, when a small mechanical container was patented. And that's when the Pez dispenser was born. When Pez was introduced to North America in 1952, it didn't sell well because of its strong peppermint flavor. So, in order to attract kids to the brand, the company created fun, fruity flavors. Pez collections didn't become prized until the 1990s, when the first collector convention was held in Ohio in 1991. Pez, an iconic brand that has endured for over 90 years. And by the way, Pez inventor Edward Haas was a militant anti-smoker. He created the candy as an alternative to smoking. And that's why the Pez dispenser flicks open like a lighter. It was designed to seduce smokers to change their ways. I've been on two book tours now, and the same thing happened at each book signing. I was handed a Sharpie. That got me thinking about that brand. To begin with, the Sharpie owes a big debt to another iconic brand... That brand was invented by a Sidney Rosenthal in 1952. His creation dispensed ink evenly from a leak-proof glass barrel to a felt, wedge-shaped nib. Sidney called his invention the magic marker. Commercial artists loved magic markers, and I have fond memories of walking into the offices of advertising art directors and hearing the squeak of the markers as they sketched ad layouts. Soon, the general public fell in love with magic markers, too. Now, let's go back in time to, oh,
2: 1857.
0: That year, the Sanford Manufacturing Company was founded. It specialized in producing ink and glue. The company did well, managed to survive the Depression years, and grew during the 40s and 50s. Soon, ink would become its main product, so Sanford Manufacturing changed its name to the Sanford Ink Company. Then, in 1964, inspired by the Chunky Magic marker, the company wanted to develop a new kind of marker that was more pen-like in size, with a fine point. Next, the Sanford Ink Company did what it did best. It created a proprietary ink that was not only permanent, but could be used on virtually any kind of surface, from paper and plastic to metal, wood, stone, and even glass. It was a huge success. It's interesting to note that Sharpie took a big jump in the 90s when the $500 billion memorabilia industry exploded and the desire for signed items skyrocketed. Sharpies can be found everywhere these days, from the pockets of Hollywood celebrities to inside the White House to the International Space Station. But the most memorable Sharpie incident happened on the football field in 2002. In a game against the Seattle Seahawks, San Francisco 49er Terrell Owens caught a pass on the left sideline and ran it in for the touchdown. But what he did next would go down in NFL history. After he crossed the goal line, he reached down and pulled a Sharpie out of his sock and signed the ball.
3: Touchdown! What is, is that a pen? Yeah, he he had, he had a pen in his
0: sock and he pulled it out and autographed the ball. That's a first. Who would even think of that? Who would think of that? Terrell Owens would think of that. Then Owens casually walked over to the end zone and handed the ball to a fan. It was like a gift from God, said the Sharpie brand manager, who estimated the stunt gave Sharpie about $500,000 worth of publicity. Sharpie, 54 years old and still making a mark. One day in 1863... A cabinet maker loaned his life savings to a lens crafter. That lens crafter was John Jacob Bosch, who had emigrated from Germany to Rochester, New York to open an optical store. Henry Lohm, a cabinet maker and fellow German immigrant, loaned him the money to buy retail space. and, on a handshake, the two went into business together. They sold eyeglasses, telescopes, binoculars, and microscopes. They called themselves the Bosch & Lomb Optical Company. When the Second World War approached, the U.S. military was having a problem. With recent advances in fighter plane technology, pilots were beginning to experience extreme glare at high altitudes. As a result, they were developing headaches and vision problems. So the military approached Bosch & Lomb to create special anti-glare aviation glasses. The resulting lenses were made out of green glass to cut glare. They were shaped like a teardrop to cover as much of the pilot's view as possible while still fitting comfortably around the eye. Problem solved. Soon afterward, Ray-Ban aviators would unintentionally make their worldwide debut. When General Douglas MacArthur landed on a beach in the Philippines during World War II, journalists snapped photos of him wearing his aviators. It wasn't long before the Ray-Ban brand made a seamless jump from military function to fashion accessory. But anti-glare aviation glasses didn't have much marketing appeal, so they branded the glasses Ray-Ban. Why Ray-Ban? Because the glasses banned UV rays it didn't take long for Ray-Bans to make their way to Hollywood. While many associate the brand with James Dean and Marlon Brando, the first to sport a pair was actually Humphrey Bogart. I once wrote a radio commercial for Ray-Ban, telling the story of why Marilyn Monroe wore them. She spoke with a little
2: girl's voice.
0: But when she moved, she cut a silhouette that brought Hollywood and the world to its knees. On film, she was predatory. In public, she hid behind dark glasses. Not to shield Marilyn from the flashbulbs. She wore them to protect Marma Jean. Ray-Ban. Wear them. Wear the legend. But in the early 80s, oversized, chunky accessories had taken over. ray Ban sales took a dive. The brand needed a life raft. And one came in the form of a pants-free Tom Cruise. When Risky Business came out in 1983, Tom Cruise and his iconic Wayfarers rescued the Ray-Ban brand. Sales shot up 50%, which is incredible when you learn that Ray-Ban was about to discontinue Wayfarers. Then in 1986, Ray-Ban experienced a full-circle moment. Cruz starred in the film Top Gun wearing the classic Ray-Ban aviators, bringing the brand back to its military roots. Sales shot up another 40%. And today, over 80 years after the birth of Ray-Ban, the company is still rolling with the times while remaining true to its iconic heritage. It's why many of us wear the very same aviators General MacArthur wore on the beach that day in 1944. And it wouldn't be the last product inspired by the military. And we'll be right back.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
3: If you're enjoying this episode, why
0: not dip into our archives? Available wherever you download your pods. Go to terryoreilly.ca for a master episode list. In the 1940s, the U.S. government commissioned footwear manufacturer Wolverine Worldwide to develop a product for the military. Pigskin Gloves While pigskin was one of the most durable leathers, it was extremely difficult to process. After the war, the company was about to revert to using cowhide leather, as it was less time-consuming. But the chairman of Wolverine saw the value of durable pigskin and directed his company to find a way to revolutionize the process. It did, by sanding the pigskin down to an extra soft suede. That made it too soft for a work boot. So Wolverine created the first real casual men's slip-on shoe with a soft crepe rubber sole. The company planned to call them Lancers. One day, the company's sales manager was visiting a customer in Tennessee. After they had finished their fish dinner... The sales manager asked his customer why the fried corn dough balls on their plates were called hush puppies. The customer said the fried dough was often used by farmers to quiet down their barking dogs. As aching feet were often called barking dogs, the sales manager wondered if hush puppies might just be the perfect name for his company's new line of soft pigskin shoes. The chairman of Wolverine agreed, so Lancers were rechristened Hush Puppies and were launched nationally in 1958. Soon, Hollywood celebs were all sporting their suede loafers. By 1963, one in ten people owned a pair of Hush Puppies. Hush Puppies even saved a Rolling Stone once. After accidentally touching his guitar against an ungrounded mic during a concert, Keith Richards was nearly electrocuted, but the doctors believe his life was spared thanks to his rubber-soled hush puppies. Over 17 million pairs of hush puppies are sold every year across 165 countries. I own a pair of hush puppy desert boots, and by the way, if you've ever looked at the cover of the Beatles' Abbey Road album, you'll notice George Harrison is sporting a pair as he crosses that famous road. His pair looks identical to mine, even though they were purchased almost 50 years apart. It's a timeless brand that has endured. And speaking of crossing that famous road, welcome to Abbey Road Studios. Back in 1813, Abbey Road Studios was a home. It was a massive Georgian townhouse with nine bathrooms, servants' rooms, and a wine cellar. The building was eventually purchased by the Gramophone Company in 1931. Not long after, it merged with the Columbia Gramophone Company to form Electric and Musical Industries Limited, or EMI for short. EMI converted the townhouse into the first ever studio... ...purposely built to be a recording studio. Studio One became the world's largest recording facility... ...able to easily accommodate a 110-piece orchestra... ...and a 100-piece choir simultaneously. As a matter of fact, you're listening to the first recording ever done... ...in EMI's studio back in 1931... Land of Hope and Glory, as conducted by composer Sir Edward Elgar. During the 1930s and 40s, the studio was used extensively by famous conductors to record classical music. In 1950, a young man named George Martin joined EMI Studios as an assistant to the head of Parlophone Records, an EMI subsidiary. Parlophone was essentially a comedy label at that time, with George Martin producing records by comedians such as Peter Sellers and The Goons. But in the early 60s, he was instructed to sign a guitar band as rock and roll was starting to emerge, which led to that famous moment in Studio 2 on June 6, 1962, when George Martin auditioned a certain group from Liverpool. You may have heard of them. If George Martin was the fifth Beatle, then EMI Studio 2 was the sixth. Like every great recording studio, the sound of the actual room is utterly unique. And Studio 2 has a sound of its own. It's about the size of the room, how the sound bounces off those walls, how the sound rings off that high ceiling. It's about the flooring material. It's about the long staircase that goes up to the control room. All of it combined to become an integral part of the Beatles' sound. It's interesting to note that EMI's studios were not the most technically advanced at the time, and that was part of its magic. As famous sound engineer Jeff Emmerich says, the restraints forced them, and the Beatles, to be creative. As a result, the studio's tape machines were rewired into interesting combinations, Tapes were sped up, slowed down, spliced and looped. Drums were put into hallways. Speakers were set up in closets. That forced experimentation resulted in sonic brilliance. The Beatles began their career at EMI Studios, so it was fitting the band said a memorable goodbye there too in 1969 when they released the magnificent Abbey Road LP. That album, and the famous cover photo of the Beatles crossing Abbey Road, made EMI Studios world famous. And it was at that point in time that EMI decided to officially change the name of the facility from EMI Studios to Abbey Road Studios. Many great songs and albums have been recorded at Abbey Road and its massive Studio One is also a go-to studio for movie scores, including the famous theme from Star Wars. When you listen to the opening moments of the Star Wars theme, you're hearing the London Symphony Orchestra strike the first powerful notes of John Williams' remarkable composition. But part of that power is the result of those massive notes reverberating in that massive room. And that is Abbey Road's contribution. That's why the iconic soundtracks for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harry Potter, and Lord of the Rings were all recorded there. And just last month, I was at Abbey Road Studios... My friend, Trevor Morris, an Emmy-winning composer of film and TV music scores in Hollywood, invited me to watch a film score being recorded in Studio One. And I take you with me. Go to our Instagram page for pictures and videos at Terry O. Influence. I was amused to hear the musicians recording there that day affectionately refer to Abbey Road as Shabby Road. Because while the control rooms have the latest technology, the studios themselves have not been updated since the 60s. But there is a reason for that. Changing the materials and surfaces in the studio would alter its sound. And its sound is its enduring magic. The day I walked through the gate at Abbey Road Studios, there were dozens of fans standing on the sidewalk just staring at the building. No other recording studio in the world attracts fans every single day of every single year. But Abbey Road isn't just a recording studio. It is an iconic brand. A creative director once told me that a brand is like a suntan. It fades over time and must be constantly refreshed. That is the singular power of all the brands I talked about today. They have not faded. They have endured in a world of wavering standards and have survived the harsh elbows of flashy trends. To me, a great brand stands for something. Ray-Bans were developed to solve a military problem. But it stands for Timeless Design... And has survived in the most fickle of industries fashion. Sharpies brought the magic of markers to a slim pen and jumped ahead of competitors by developing a proprietary ink that could write on virtually any surface. The makers of Hush Puppies went against the grain by insisting the shoe be made of pigskin, making the casual shoe a fashion statement. And Pez has survived for over 90 years in a category full of hungry competitors. It found a way to stand out with amusing dispensers and maybe even convinced a few smokers to change their habit along the way. Then there is Abbey Road. It is the cathedral of recording studios, unchanged and untouched since the 1960s. A studio that elevated the standards of recorded music for all time. All of these brands, unique in their categories, all remarkable in their resilience. And each one of them has us under their influence. I'm Terry O'Reilly. Influence was recorded in the Tear Stream. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Sound engineer, Keith Oman. Theme music by Ari Posner and Ian LaFever. Co-writer, Sydney O'Reilly. Don't forget to come tour Abbey Road with me on Instagram at TerryOInfluence or at cbc.ca slash Under Influence. See you next week. This episode brought to you by
1: Hush Puppy Shoes.
0: Makes walking easier. We'd like to see your mug shot. Purchase an under-the-influence coffee mug, then send us a photo of you listening to the show with the mug. We'll post it to our social media. Go to terryoreilly.ca slash shop. Every purchase supports the show. We appreciate it.